Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Muslim Academy needs especially to put on foot strategies for welcoming the diversity of the Muslim world. It must emphasize mutual awareness of Sunni and Shi'i and other Islamic and non-Islamic traditions, as well as welcome the perspectives of Muslim peoples, countries, and cultures outside the Middle East. As I saw later in my budding career, this dismissive attitude toward Westerners and their work carried well beyond Malaysia. In both Shi'i and Sunni academia, I found work produced in the West is just not valued. Scholars in the Muslim academy generally were neither familiar with nor interested in studying Western works on Islam. The central place of Sa'id's Orientalism and its critique of imperializing cultural representation is also present across the different disciplines of the humanities in the Muslim academy, at the expense of other, more contemporary Western thinkers whose concerns focus and develop sites. Consider the work of the renowned Nobel Prize-winning African-American writer, literary and social critic, and activist, Toni Morrison. Hers like Saeed's, are popular in the West and cover most of the principal themes covered by Orientalism, including otherness, outsidership, exploitation and cultural colonialism, and imperialism. Yet Morrison's readership in the Muslim Academy is primarily students of English language literature. One would be hard-pressed to find, for instance, even a free publisher's copy of Morrison's essay, The Origin of Others in translation or not, on the bookshelf of one of the Muslim Academy's experts on Islam or history or politics or sociology. End quotes. What you just listened to are some of the passages which form the crux of the thesis of a new book by Majid Danishka called Studying the Quran in the Muslim Academy, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Welcome to the New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Asad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is, as you can guess, Majid Danishgar. Majid Danishgar is a research associate at the Albert Ludwigs Universität Freiburg in Germany. He's an alumnus of the Freiburg Institute for Advanced Studies and was Marie S. Curie Fellow in 2017 to 2018. He completed his PhD at the University of Malaya in Kuala Lumpur, where he later worked as senior lecturer of Islamic studies. He also taught Islam at the University of Otago, New Zealand, where he was nominated for the Most Inclusive Teaching Award in 2015. Majid also received the Auckland Library Heritage Trust Scholarship in 2017, by which he could compile the catalog of the Middle Eastern and Islamic materials in different languages across New Zealand. Majid's research interests lie in trans-regional Islamic exegetical and intellectual works, Malay-Indonesian Islam, and method and theory in the study of religion. 
He has published two monographs and three edited volumes. So without further ado, I now welcome Majid Danishkar to our podcast. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Asad. Well, as always, we like to start our discussion with a brief biographical sketch of our scholarly guests. And I would be curious to know what was your intellectual trajectory up until this point? What brought you to writing this book? And, you know, if there were any formative moments, we'd love to hear them. Thanks for raising those questions. Uh, well, there is a longer story behind writing this book, which is largely based on my own experience in various social and academic contexts. Let me say a bit how my life journey as well as my own observations shaped the outline of this book. It dates back many years to when I was a child starting my education in Maktab, a small school where one learns to recite the Quran and to perform namaz, salat, or say prayers. I was always encouraged to actively participate in religious and Islamic gatherings as well as Quranic recitation programs. On the other hand, I had a semi-traditional family. They always wanted me to study Islam, and this is why among their four boys, it was only me who changed his, his way from geology and engineering and urban planning to Quranic sciences, ulum al-Qurani or ulum al-Qur'an. As I mentioned in my book, my parents named me Majid due to my mother's dream when she was expecting. So my life was largely Quran-centric from the beginning. After the deadly earthquake of Bam, Kerman province in 2003, I went to the Tehran College of Quranic Sciences. Our dean always referred to us as engineers, but engineers of the Quran and its sciences, Mohandesane Ulume Quran, who are responsible for saving people's spiritual and psychological life, which is, according to him, much more important than the job of a geologist who can save people's so-called material life. The study in the Quran was from the beginning a family and social challenge. Each of my three older brothers were, on the one hand, engineers. Our relatives were shocked why the last kid did not want to become an engineer. On the other hand, it was and is, is still so common for brilliant students to study in hard sciences, mathematics, medicine, law which again allowed others to view a student of the Quran as a poor, lazy guy unable to study other fields. Generally speaking, a study of Islam and the Quran in many Islamic contexts is not viewed as a so-called prestigious discipline. However, I did not give up and continued my MA in Qom, the most religious city of Iran, where, I, where again I noticed how other Islamic subfields like Islamic philosophy and theology, which is called Islamic ethics, akhlaq, and jurisprudence or fiqh viewed superior to that of Quranic sciences and Quranic studies. The big question is, how does the Quran play central role in Muslim life, culture, and politics while it is practically not seriously taken into account among academicians? This was again challenging because the majority of students from my homeland, Iran, who moved abroad to study Islam were not graduates of Quranic sciences. Most of them were graduates of engineering, philosophy, logic, and medicine, as well as hard sciences. As such, my field Quranic sciences and the, and the particular syllabus that I took was not well known among some Western universities. Although I had a chance to pursue my PhD in European universities, I decided to go to Malaysia for my PhD because I knew how the study of Islam in Iran was Shi'i-centric. 
I ask myself why not experience a pluralistic, flexible, as well as a Sunni-centric context. This journey led me to this conclusion that both Shi and Sunni contexts are culturally and traditionally rich. However, both do not see, do not hear, or understand each other due to their own politics, tradition, and culture. To me, there is a veil between the Shi and Sunni worlds. For Muslim academia, the veil means that cultural, political, and textual ignorance, partly intentional, partly unintentional, permeates Shi'i and Sunni institutions alike. I also noticed that in both Shi'i and Sunni contexts, the works produced by Western scholars of Islam and the Quran are selectively read, and if they are ever seriously examined, that is often for the sake of downgrading and criticizing the West and Western scholars. Here, I can combine both my family and academic concerns that studying the Quran in the Muslim Academy has not yet been examined seriously. I was really lucky. I was really lucky that I was awarded the Marie Curious uh, FCFP fellowship during my stay at Freiburg Institute for Advanced Study, through which I could complete this project. Thank you for that, Professor. You know, you know, you begin the text with a provocative question, which I believe is useful for a starting point of our discussion, which I quoted in the beginning of this interview. In your introduction, you write about the centrality of Edward Said's work, Orientalism mm -hmm. in the Muslim Academy. Yeah. Right. And by Muslim Academy, we, Muslim Academy, we mean, you know, institutions in the Muslim majority world. Yeah. Um, and you ask why his, why his work holds this central position to the exclusion of others who offer similar forms of post-colonial critique. Yeah. You, know, you ask us to consider the work of Toni Morrison, whose works you write, you know, cover most of the principal themes covered by Orientalism, including otherness, outsidership, exploitation, cultural colonialism, and imperialism. Yet you note a glaring absence of her work in the Muslim Academy. So um, how do you think, you know, do you, do you feel that the, the absence of Morrison's work in the Muslim Academy is a microcosm um, that is emblematic of a larger trend? Uh, thank you very much for uh, this very good question, Asad. Before, uh, you know, let me define the Muslim Academy and its structure. Before defining the Muslim Academy, I should say that there is a form of power which administers academic institutes in the Muslim world, and it is the irshadic power or the guidance power. This is in contrast to the idea of pastoral power that was put forward by Michel Foucault for the Christian European context. Yershadic power, unlike pastoral power, does not need to know the inside of people's mind, but does instead need to witness their actual and outward obedience to Islamic authorities, like Muhammad, the caliphs, the imams, the successors, who are believed to be the source of knowledge and bliss, as well as being the link between God and people. By identifying this form of power, I could trace the way the Quran is taught in various academies across the Muslim world. The phrase Muslim Academy or Muslim Academy context will refer to academic institutions or publications that are, that, that are either directly or indirectly dependent on an Islamic government or any type of religious organization or authority. The academic context in the Muslim world indeed brings together nationalism, politics, and religion. These academic contexts are not restricted to universities, but also include colleges and academies. 
In such places, students are not only able to pursue their studies, but can also make contributions to social and political discussion groups and seminars related to Islamic culture and identity. Muslim academic contexts offer many compulsory Arabic and some often optional English language courses. The English language courses are usually based on reading Muslim apologetic texts that are reflective of the country's dominant sect. As such, for example, Sayyid Hussein Nasr's translation of Shi'ism by uh, the famous Shi'i theologian and exegetical figure Muhammad Hussein Tabatabai is read in Iraq. In order to improve a students' understanding of English texts, some institutes provide them with reading that critic and criticize the writing of the so-called Orientalist work within the Western academic field of Islamic studies. And yes, ignoring Tony Morrison in the Muslim Academy on the one hand, and hyperbolic admiration of Edward Said on the other, explains many things about the way politics administers the Muslim academic context. As you mentioned, both Morrison and Said had had same concern, but Said's voice is much louder in the Muslim Academy because his ideas and works, particularly that of Orientalism and covering Islam, are about Muslims and their political and intellectual opponents. In the Muslim Academy, it is politics which tells us or tells you what should be read and what should not. And Said's Orientalism is the one that is read and admired. As a matter of fact, the problem is how the Muslim Academy tolerates the other. For them, Said, who is originally a Palestinian and an, and an advocate concerned with Muslims, is an insider. But Tony Morrison is an out outsider. It does not matter how groundbreaking, provocative, and important one's study may be. As long as it does not meet the expectation of Muslim authorities, it cannot be seriously taken into account. In my book, I compare the status of Morrison and Said with that of other Western scholars of Islam, John Vansbury versus Maris Bukai. Vansbury's critical study on the origin of Quran, which was revolutionary during his own time in the 1970s, encountered the critical and provocative work of the French physician Maurice Bukai, in which he upgraded the Quran and downgraded the Bible and Christianity from a scientific perspective. Unsurprisingly, Vansbrough's work, Quranic Studies, has not yet been translated into any Islamic languages, while that of Bukai, La Bible, the Quran de la Science, or the, Quran, the Bible, the Quran and Science, is found everywhere in every language in the Muslim world and even in many mosques and Dawah centers in the West. So, for our listeners, um, the book is divided into two parts, as Majid writes. Part one considers how the critical methodology and tools of Western Islamic studies are dealt with. And in an interaction with the former, part two deals with the persistence of sectarian treatment of the Quran and Quranic studies. So chapter one is called Islamic Apologetics and Islamic Studies. Chapter two is called the Quran in the Muslim Academy, what should be censored. Chapter three is the sectarian study of Islam, a culture of isolation and the isolation of cultures. Chapter four is hatred of inferiority and confrontation with the West, forgetting some, remembering others. So I thought we could go through these chronologically in our interview, beginning with chapter one, of course. Uh, the problem of what, what, what the professor calls 
uh, Islamic apologetics, quote unquote. I know, I know. How do you, how do you, how do you define this term? Because I know it, you know, it appears quite often throughout the text. Um, and what is the problem you identify uh, with Islamic apologetics as it relates to the study of Islam in the Muslim Academy? Thank you very much for asking this question, Asa. Some people ask me too. Uh, by apologetics in general, I mean to refer to a set of defensive strategies to preserve and promote religious teachings via scholarly discourse. In this work, I seek to explore the reverse process, how Muslims have in return applied or deliberately not modern European approaches to the study of Islam in general and the Quran in particular as part of their scientific discipline and particularly how they have studied and continue to study the Quran and other Islamic sources in both Sunni and Shi'i academic contexts. Islamic apologetics refer to a set of entrenched scholarly approaches and practices within the worldwide Muslim academy that effectively shield Muslims from critical thinking about Islam and the Quran. More specifically, Islamic apologetics means an argument or rhetorical forensic that substitutes a defensive identity or orthodoxy for critical methodology, analysis, or research. Islamic apologetics ensures that Muslims are not given access to critical non-Muslim writings about the Quran and Islam, while guaranteeing that a customary sectarian divide insulates Sunnis and Shis from each other's ideas and works. Islamic apologetics limits our knowledge of the, of the other and their languages. For example, everything about Islam is largely viewed through the lens of Arabic materials. To the extent that having a Eurocentric approach towards phenomena could be harmful, having an Arabocentric approach might be problematic. So after a while, studying of Islam and the Quran will become monolingual. Hundreds hundred works on the Quran in Persian, Turkish, Urdu, Pashto, Bengali, and Javi, as well as in different African languages, are interrelated, which are neither viewed nor examined in the East and the West. Perfect definition to, 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 to transition into the next question. Um, in chapter two, you know, you write about the Muslim Academy's reception of Quranic scholars in the West. And this is where, you know, Islamic apologetics comes into play. You name a few pioneers that are well known in the Western Academy, such as Andrew Rippon and Montgomery Watt. Both of, both of whom were highly sympathetic to the Islamic intellectual tradition. And yet... Their reception in the Muslim Academy, as you write, has been mixed and many of their works have been censored. And so I, have, I wanted to divide this question into two parts. Um, what does Quranic studies in the West, uh, and very brief, obviously, this, is, this can be an entire uh, you know, semester of its own, but Quranic studies in the West, you know, based on the case of Andrew Rippon, yeah. in, in, in very brief, what does that look like? And how has it been received in the Muslim Academy? Thanks, Asad, for this pertinent question. Many people have examined the, study of, the status of Quranic studies in the West, including Andrew Rippon, telling us how the Quran should be read with biblical materials or what sort of evidence, including manuscripts, should be taken into account. However, I think there are a couple of major problems in Western Quranic studies. The first one is the lack of philological expertise. The study of Islam is largely based on Arabic materials. This is connected with the status of Quranic studies in Western universities. 
In the West, when one engages with Near Eastern studies, Middle Eastern studies, Orientalist studies, history, anthropology, Christian theology, and religious studies, she or he may become interested in the Quran and Quranic studies. In fact, there is no department or a program of Quranic studies in the West. As such, one, for example, in the Department of Iranian Studies, learns about the Quran within the Iranian context. So, the Quran through a larger and wider perspective cannot be seen. This is why, for example, Quranic studies in Nigeria and in Kuala Lumpur, east and west of the Islamic world, are not viewed as interconnected. I try to demonstrate this issue in my work. Another problem, which is crucial too, is that Quranic studies in the West is still seriously ignorant of Quranic arts, either oral or written. It is true that Quranic manuscripts have been examined for over a hundred years, but actually, Quranic calligraphy as well as Quranic science of recitation, are marginalized. This is despite the fact that most of these arts are, to a large extent, the big actors of Islamic culture and heritage. For centuries, Muslims organized their recitations and calligraphic circles, halaqat, but what happened and how they proceeded with it to remain unanswered. Quranic studies in the West also overlooks materials published in Islamic languages in the Muslim world. Let me give you and our listeners an example. A friend of mine completed her thesis on Tafsir ibn Abbas, one of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad in Tehran in 2003. She published an article in Persian in 2004. Later on, and after 14 years, she expanded her ideas and published her article with a famous European journal. Upon the publication of her English article, I received a message from an, an American colleague who had also written something on Ibn Abbas in 2008. He wondered why my Iranian colleague has not cited his work. But I think the question should be asked the other way around. Why my American colleague did not cite the Persian work of my friend in 2004? The answer is simple, depressing and tragic. The current language of Islamic and Quranic studies is, is English. Whoever writes and publishes in Islamic languages has less chance to be heard, seen, and even cited. This can be applied to Quranic studies in other European languages, like German, French, Spanish. How many North American, Australian, New Zealand students are interested in or are able to read works in these languages? And regarding the second part of your question, I should say that a large part of Eastern Islamic and Quranic studies are treated selectively in the Muslim world. Muslim scholars who reside in the Islamic world, who want to learn about Western knowledge of religion in general and of Islam in particular, have to refer to translation of Western works. However, translations of all such so-called alien works are not available. Indeed, much of the Middle Easterners' understanding of Islam is based upon selective translation of Western outputs. To be eligible for translation into local languages and be well received by academics, the general public and the government, a work should be positioned into one of these following categories. A. Supportive and compatible with Islamic and sometimes governmental teachings. B. Neutral essay or reports that do not address controversial issues regarding the origin of Islam. 
or C, critical and anti-Orientalist works presenting Westerners' unfamiliarity with the greatness of Islamic civilization or their attempts to ruin Muslims' identity. However, publishing a translated work is not easy and the conditions vary con from country to country. Western works that echo Shi'i teachings are not usually translated in Sunni-majority countries and vice versa. Instead, they may be critiqued. When we look at the reception of Western works on the history and the origin of the Qur'an, we can see that some, for example, Montgomery Watt, are highly admired and some, like Vansbrew, highly rejected. In Islamic context, less attention is usually paid to their methodology, manhaj, with the focus being on their conclusions. After Western Quranic studies, there are studies on the Prophet is treated selectively. In my work, I displayed how David Power's book, Muhammad is not the father of any of your men, and Shoemaker's book, The Death of a Prophet, are censored while their critical reviews are translated. So we, you know, you've said a lot about uh, Muslim and non-Muslim uh, Islamic, or sorry, I should say Western Islamic studies. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm interested in talking about intra-Muslim approaches to Islamic studies because you, you know that's also something that you that, that you write about and you say that you know intra-Muslim uh, sectarian divides or linguistic divides or yeah. geographical divides uh, often factor in how uh, specific works are received from from one place to another. Um, can you, you know, one, one of the regions that you, that you specialize in and that you write about and that would, I would like our listeners, mm -hmm. um, to, to gain a more insight into is Southeast Asia, which you call quote, the forgotten East in the yeah. Muslim Academy. So can you elaborate on, um, you know, how some of how intra-Muslim, uh, polemics play into the reception of works, uh, in the Muslim Academy in Southeast Asia? Thank you very much. This is a very good question, Asad John. Uh, to discuss intra-Muslim approaches to Islamic studies, I called my chapter three, The Sectarian Study of Islam, The Culture of Isolation and the Isolation of Cultures. I mean that if others are isolated and marginalized in an Islamic context, then it evolves and becomes part of their culture, a culture which is alien to other forms of traditions and cultures. I highlighted how not only people from the lands of Islam are unfamiliar with Southeast Asia and Eastern and Sub-Saharan Africa, but also people in those regions have become largely ignorant of their own culture. They often imported Islamic texts from the Arab, Sunni, or Persian Shi'i world. In fact, they only viewed the Islam of Arabs or sometimes Persians. They never ever expected that Malays had influence on Middle Eastern customs and traditions. Annually, the Middle East hosts hundreds of Sunnis and Shi'i, Malay, Indonesians, and African students who are in various ways influenced by pieces of propaganda produced against the identity and politics of the other sect. Neither the Sunnis nor the Shia study each other's legal treatises, risalat al-fiqhi, and writings. It is therefore not surprising that a Sunni Malay university professor who graduated from a famous Middle Eastern university told me without reference to a reliable Shi'i source that temporary marriage, mut'a, allows Shi'i to have intercourse with an immature girl. 
Such unfamiliarity is often related to a sectarian evaluation of Islamic sources. For instance, very few Malaysian students study the famous Shi commentaries by At-Tabursi or or Tabatabari. Likewise, and despite recent enthusiasm for comparative interpretations, Tafsiri Tatbiri, of the Quran in some colleges in the Middle East, only a few Shia scholars argue for the importance and contribution of Sunni exegetical works to the study of Islam. Apart from ignoring each other's Islamic sources, they ignored each other's literally works. Let's ask how many Iranian students of Quranic studies read Arabic, Turkish, and Malay literally works and vice versa. As a further example, the teaching of Arabic in a Malaysian department of Islam, which is usually called Pangajian Islam, is almost always not sufficiently deep to understand the cultural and literary background of the Arab world. The Arabic language courses in Malay Indonesian department help the students to converse, to specify the tense of a sentence, and to translate a text from or into Arabic. Yet the connection between Arabic tales, particularly those with a global reputation, 1001 Nights, and the development of Arabic Islamic culture is not discussed. This is despite the fact that the studying Arabic stories can connect Malay students with Alayan cultures, including Persians, one that is not seriously taken into account by authorities. In the last chapter of your book, you offer an interesting critique of Said's Orientalism and its pitfalls. And I, I, I'm interested in, in, in this, especially because, um, you know, in the last decade or so, there's been, in the Western Academy, there's been enormous, um, you know, uh, not just critique, but also adding on to the arguments that, that, uh, that Edward Said has made uh, within the field of Islamic studies. And so, you, you know, you, you point to some of the critiques um, in the field of Middle East studies, Quranic studies, Islamic studies. Um, and you mentioned that there are what you call disappeared histories in Said's work. Could you elaborate on, you know, some of these disappeared histories or, or these criticisms? Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much. You know, although Orientalism was influential and timely, the number of errors found throughout its pages could fill several thick books. Certainly, Said was able, on the basis of Foucault's discourse, to shed light on how knowledge gave Europeans both physically and mentally ruling power over Arabs, but he failed to declassify Europeans as various groups. He did not notice that a large number of Europeans were amazed by Islamic traditions and the chanting of poems for the sake of Islam and Muhammad. He ignored that Muslims were ambivalent about Orientalists. Some admired them, some criticized them. Iranian and Malay scholars were appreciative of Theodor Noltke's studies on Quranic chronological orders and Tarikh al-Quran. And there were Egyptian thinkers and religious figures who clearly distinguished between a European colonial officer and a European scholar. Recent critical works have blamed him for not consulting more accurate and comprehensive literature from the East and the West. One may well be, well be surprised to see that Said's book, addressing both European and Orientals, does not include references produced in the Orient by Orientals in Oriental or Islamic languages, who were, according to Said himself, under European dominance. 
He was also pretty selective, as he displayed only his own Orient, the Arab world, through the lens of a particular clique of Orientalists. Besides historical and methodological inconsistencies, he, as someone who had seemingly lived in the past, presented the root of Orientalism as an Asian imaginary, a mental and later political interest of Europeans whose main opponents were Orientals, Saracens, Arabs, and Muslims. And uh, according to Said, an advocate of Isis Orientalism, Europe found its sexual, physical, and mental health and happiness in the Orient. For some reason, however, the reverse of this process never ever happened. Said, the definition of the Orient is both a mischaracterization and dangerous, reducing the Orient to the Holy Land, Palestine, Egypt, or say the Arab world, his homeland. And the Orientalists, as the scholars of the Arab Islamic world mean that he ignored other Asian countries as part of the Orient. That is al-musta'aribun, not al-musta'ashribun. For Sa'id, Persia, India, Ottoman, Turkey, minus its Arabian parts, Malaya, China, and, J- and Japan, the countries and nations which had regularly been presented as part of the Orient in medieval and classical works, maps, paintings, and studies were simply not important. He failed to show that Musta'aribun and Ulama al-Musta'ashribun are not similar. The first one, I mean, Musta'aribun, referred to the scholars and experts of the Arab world and its Islamic civilization, while the latter, Musta'ashribun, refers to non-Arabic as well as non-Islamic language and science of the Orient too. In addition, this is despite the fact that these places were not only colonized by Muslims, but their citizens were also part of colonial armies like Japan. Putting aside the Muslims' invasion of Europe and North Africa soon after the death of the Prophet of Islam, adverse it could simply ignore how, for example, Nadir Shah Afshar invaded India, leading to a savage massacre as well as massive plundering for Sayyid in his Orientalism and his acolytes. Uh, However, colonialism, imperialism, plundering, and exploitation could often be uh, done by Europeans. Uh, and uh, one-sided outright narrative as best demonstrated by Said deliberately concealed what was really going on in Europe. Said's attempt, Said attempted to show how earlier literature and classical narrative about the Orient caused Christian Europeans, particularly the French and English, to divide the world into two parts, us and them. However, he ignored the fact that medieval Muslims did exactly the same and classified the world into Dar al-Islam, House of Islam, and Dar al-Harb, House of War. As a follow-up to that, um, going back to the subject of Quranic studies, how, how, what has Quranic studies in the Muslim academy looked like in a post-Orientalism you know, world? Um, we should admit that says Orientalism had a significant impact on Muslim and non-Muslim Quranic studies. Muslim weaponized it against the West, and in the West it played the role of a bomb, producing their speed and, and courage. The younger generation in the Muslim world tried to reform Say's approach, like in Iran and Indonesia. You know, the younger generation in the Muslim world tried to reform Say's approach by encouraging students and researchers to have a better look at Western research methodology and not just their concluding remarks, which contradicts their teachings. Despite such efforts, I think that such reformist approaches are active in private circles. 
in governmental and political institutes, it is still hard not to see someone critic the West impressed by Said or Saidian thought. Yeah. As a final question, Professor, and thank you so much for elucidating, you know, the, the four key chapters of your book. Um, you've given us a lot to chew on and a lot to think over. Um, but as a final question, uh, we'd love to know what you're currently working on, um, if there are plans to expand this project, and you know what's in store for you in the future. What can we look to look forward to? Thank you very much, Asad John. Uh, in line with my monograph, I recently co-edited the volume entitled "Deconstructing Islamic Studies," published with ILEX Foundation and Harvard University Press. This volume, comprising chapters by leading experts, deconstructs the ways in which classical Muslim scholarship has structured and indeed continues to structure the modern study of Islam. It explores how classical subjects have been approached traditionally, theologically, and secularly, in addition to examining some of the tensions inherent in these approaches. Uh, nonetheless, my research interests include three parts. Transregional Islamic exegetical and intellectual works, Malay Islam, and method and theory in the study of religion. So at present, I'm working on three projects related to these three areas. Transregional commentaries on the Quran from the Middle East to Southeast Asia, through which I want to show how the Quran was read and interpreted at the turn of the 20th century. Second is the connect about the connection between Persia and the Malay world a project which I have been engaging since around, let's say, five years ago. And third is censorship in Muslim literature, a project which I officially began in 2017 at Freiburg Institute for Advanced Studies. And all these projects are, you know, ultimately related to each other. Well, that's wonderful. And that sounds really, really exciting. And we're looking forward, um, you know, to seeing what comes out and through, through, you know, through all of these works. Um, there you have it, folks, Studying the Quran in the Muslim Academy by Majid Danishkar, published by Oxford University Press. Thank you all for tuning in and thank you for joining us, Professor. Thank you very much, Asad. We had a wonderful time. Thank you. Take care.